listening to the Bible 126 show. Okay, we are in Leviticus. We've finished the first major section, the first seven chapters of Leviticus deal with the offerings. And we've uh, gone through the various offerings. I encourage you to go ahead and go through your notes, refresh your notes, try to summarize them in the way that those basic, the basic five plus the drink offerings to make it six, the basic five offerings are familiar to you because they, in various ways they'll continually be echoing all through this book. But we're going to begin a new section tonight. The section consists of three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And we'll try to get through that in the time that's available to us. The section is about the priesthood. Now a priest and a prophet are opposites, you realize. A priest is one who represents man before God. A prophet is one that speaks for God to man. So in a sense, if you look, the communication path is just opposite, in a sense. And of course, Jesus is both of these. He's both our prophet and our priest, as well as our king. So we're going to leave. We've been spending the last seven chapters around the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice, the shedding of blood and all that. We're now going to move one step in the tabernacle to the brazen laver, the washing. And this is going to give us, obviously, we're dealing, we'll be dealing with the priests and their consecration. But the real, one of the values to you and I as New Testament believers is that we'll get some glimpse as to what consecration really means. We're judicially washed by His blood, but we are uh, gain our sanctification by the washing of the water by the Word in Ephesians 5.26. So there's two kinds of washings spoken. We can speak of being washed, our sins washed away by the blood of Christ in a judicial sense, absolutely. In fact, we should, we should come away from the last uh, seven chapters with a, almost a horror of all the blood, blood everywhere. And that's there deliberately to make a point. This is blood of animals, animals that were alive and then slain, and it, it was to repeatedly dramatize the hideousness of sin. And so the blood is, is the offering issue. Now we're going to get into the washing. And the washing of the water by the word in Ephesians 5.26. So we're, we're, uh, we are justified by the blood. We are sanctified by being washed in the word. Now, the book of Leviticus was originally, in fact still is, it was written for the Levites. But it was God's intention to make the whole nation Israel priests. But they had, the, and that's declared in, in Exodus 19, when the law was given, in verse 6. But then we have this incident of the golden calf. And one of the implications of that, only one tribe was taken, the tribe of Levi. There are those, and I, th I tend to lean this way, that the nation of Israel will achieve that destiny after the church is gone. There will be a time when the nation of Israel will be the mechanism through which God is going to deal with the planet Earth. 
And uh, now, as we go through this, there are going to be some parallels with the church, which is also a priesthood. Uh, and uh, in Hebrews 8, 1, 1 Peter 2, 9, and uh, Revelation 5, we find uh, that believers, the redeemed, are called kings and priests. We both rule and we're also uh, viewed as priests, but not after the Aaronic priesthood. Jesus is our high priest, and he's after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. So as we go through these issues of the priesthood, on the one hand, there's some interesting lessons for us. On the other hand, we are not subject to or under the Aaron as our high priest. Jesus is, and his, his, there are lots of aspects that make his priesthoodship uh, patterned after Melchizedek. And that's exactly what the Old Testament predicted in Psalm 110 and elsewhere. And uh, that's exactly uh, what the book of Hebrews uh, deals with. Those of you that are going through the study and want to do some extra work at any time, uh, your best commentary on the book of Leviticus is the book of Hebrews. Because it really, it takes for granted you sort of understand the book of Leviticus and then applies it in much more broader, more cosmic terms in, in a New Testament sense. But now one of the things also, we can't really appreciate much of what's going to be going on um, unless we understand the architecture of the tabernacle and also the te temple that was patterned after it. If we had the time, we'd go to Hebrews 4, 8, 9, uh, especially 9, and uh, refresh, our, refresh Hebrews, uh, which deals with the fact that these things were all deliberate, deliberate designs to make a much broader point. And if we were going to take more time with the book of Leviticus, we would use as a prerequisite study the study of the tabernacle in Exodus, those chapters that detail it. I'm going to presume that most of us have enough of an acquaintance with that to just continue without spending that time in the background. If for some reason that's unfamiliar turf to you, I encourage you to undertake a study of, um, the, uh, of Exodus where it talks about the tabernacle, make a little sketch for yourself, or even better yet, uh, go through our product uh, uh, publication called Learn the Bible in 24 Hours and pick up that section that deals with the tabernacle. It has diagrams, and in relatively few minutes you'll get a good perspective of what that's really all about. But with all that, let's jump into the first of the three chapters we're going to review tonight, Leviticus chapter 8, which deals with the calling, cleansing, and clothing of the priests. And again, it opens with this interesting phrase, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, that happens so often, don't miss its key point. Most of this book is a direct quote from God. It's, not, it's a direct quote from God. God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron, that's his, that was Moses' older brother, take Aaron and his sons with him. There were four sons. We're going to talk about them more specifically before we're through. Take Aaron and his, his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bullock for the sin offering, and the two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather thou all the congregation together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly was gathered together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. We're going to go through these chapters. There's going to be lots of offerings. We're not going to take the time to recount all the symbolism, because most of that it is drawn from the previous seven chapters. So we'll take some liberties to keep moving. But there is one thing I want to emphasize in verse 4. The Lord commanded Moses, uh, commanded him. The word commanded occurs 12 times just in this chapter. 
And the clincher is verse 36, which concludes this chapter. He says, so Aaron and his sons did all things which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. God is very specific. One of the things we're going to learn as we go through this, God means what he says and says what he means. He's very precise. We're going to find some very surprising responses when they deviate even a little bit from what he says. God takes this very seriously. These aren't approximations. These aren't nice intentions. I might mention that when, you know, that when God, in, in Exodus 20, God gave Moses ten suggestions out of stone. No, ten commandments, okay? And so God is specific. He means what he says. And this shows up in the little subtleties of these rituals, the recipe for the anointing oil and such things. We'll get into all that. Verse 5, Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing which the Lord commanded to be done. Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And this speaks then to the laver that is the next thing. As you enter the tabernacle, there's one door. Anyone that goes through that other than through that door is a thief and a robber, Jesus says. Jesus, I am the door. Then you have, we, have, we spent seven chapters on the brazen altar. Now we're going to the next item that stands between us and the holy place itself, the, 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 the tabernacle proper. That's this laver for washing. It represents the word of God. And uh, Ephesians 5.26, now we are clean through the washing of the water by the word. That idiom Paul uses in Ephesians 5. We find it in Titus 3.5 and Hebrews 10.22. And again, in the interest of time, we, we, uh, we'll, we won't look up each of these passages, but you might put them in your notes. Ephesians 5.26, Titus 3.5, Hebrews 10.22, John 13.10. And 1 John 1 9. Now, 1 John 1 9, by now, I'm sure you've memorized. Christians borrow soap. If you're going to wash, you wash with 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins through the blood and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what we're talking about here. Now, something very interesting. I've, uh, I'm very interested in the information sciences, I'm very interested in, in rhetorical devices. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does, he deals in puns. Now, for you and I, a pun is usually used for humor, where something has a double meaning for, a, for, for, for levity, for, for humor. But a pun is where, where a word can mean two separate, the same word can mean two separate things. And uh, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit has a pun here, I believe. You see, right now, in the New Testament time, According to Ephesians 5.26 and these other places we've talked about, we wash in what? When we speak of water, what is it idiomatic of? What? No, no, the blood is Jesus Christ. What, what, what is the water? Is, Ephesians 5.26, now we are cleaned by the washing of the water by the word. Good, exactly, it's the word. See, right now we wash in the word. It cleanses us. When we get to heaven, what do the saints do on the glassy sea? They stand on it. The glassy sea is idiomatic, if you will, of it's the same place geometrically where the labor was. Now we wash in it, then we'll be standing on it, standing on the promises and so forth. We will cast our crowns on what? The glassy sea. And uh, it's interesting. I think this is a deliberate pun by the Holy Spirit. Now this is, a, this is what we call a pun. There are figures of speech in the scripture, rhetorical devices, Similes, metaphors, pun, and, and these are all different. There's 200 different kinds of rhetorical devices in the Scripture. 
And we catalog these in Appendix A to our book, Cosmic Codes, where we go through each one, give you an example of what it means, define it, and then give you, show you a scripture where it's used in the scripture. Over 200 of them we've collected over the years. Uh, okay, let's move on. We're now talking about the clothing of the high priest. Verse 7, he put, on upon the, he put upon him the coat and girded him with a girdle, clothed him with a robe, put the ephod upon him, and he girded him with the curious girdle of the ephod and bound it unto him therewith. There are eight art articles here. Now these are detailed in Exodus 28. The writer here presumes you've read Exodus, in effect, because they're described in detail in Exodus 28. You might want to put that in your notes because there's going to be lots of references to that chapter. The high priest had eight articles of clothing. Four of them were worn by all the priests, and four of them were unique to him. The common items were a coat, a girdle, a miter, or turban, or a bonnet, whatever you want to call it, uh, typically called a miter, but don't confuse that with the, the uh, Catholic kind of thing, and the breeches. They were of white linen. Why white? Because white speaks of what? Righteous purity or righteousness, exactly. All believers are clothed right now in Christ's righteousness. But if you want to dramatize this, if you may recall, we referred to it the other, the other time with Matthew 22. first 14 verses deal with a parable. It's just a parable of the, uh, the wedding feast where those that were invited not only didn't, came, didn't come, but they murdered the messengers to find the, the, the master of the, 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 the feast sends the servants to compel them, go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled in the Luke County of it. And, uh, of course, there's one guy there that doesn't have a proper thing, and so he's thrown into the outer darkness, which tells you it's not a story, it's a parable. Parables, they never have, they, they're just, they're, 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 they're communication devices. Uh, when they have a name like Lazarus in Luke 16, that's not a parable, it's an actual occasion, an actual thing. This is just a parable to make a point, namely, that if you're at the wedding feast, you better be clothed properly. And he didn't have a wedding garment. And it means he really wasn't invited. He somehow, in the parable, he got there. But he says, gee, if that's the rapture, how do you get there? Well, it's, it's not, it's, it, it's, a, it's, it's it, a parable's purpose is to make a principal point. You can take many parables and try to apply them to things they weren't intended for and come up with some strange views. No, parables primarily an idiomatic way to, to, to emphasize or illustrate a particular point, and that's what it does there. Verse 8, and he put the breastplate upon him. Now, I'm sorry that uh, we don't have, a, uh, uh, we haven't set up the, uh, the visuals here, but the breastplate, you, if you go to Israel, to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, they will show you the breastplate that they intend the high priest to wear when the temple is rebuilt. And you will see a square arrangement of semi-precious stones, what we would call semi-precious stones, all different colors. And on each stone, there are about three Hebrew letters, the consonants, for each of the 12 tribes. So each, 12 tri each tribe has a color and is one, of, is, on, is one of those 12 stones that make up the breastplate. And it's a square thing of roughly... In rough terms, roughly about 10 inches, a little less than a foot, square foot on a side that, hang, you know, that's, that hangs in front of the, 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 the uh, high priest's garment. And uh, I'm doing that from memory. I think that's about the right size, about uh, less, a little less than a foot on a side. Now, it's interesting. Here's a place that I wish records were better because we have the 12 stones recounted in Exodus. Um, in fact, uh, um, Exodus uh, 
28, I believe. There are also 12 stones that are mentioned in the Garden of Eden, uh, correction, in Eden. There is a description in Ezekiel 28 of Eden that is very different than the description of Eden that's in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we have the Garden of Eden. And we naturally infer there's trees. In fact, there are trees, all kinds of interesting trees. It's a very different kind of place. It's, it may very well have been a ten-dimensional kind of place, not just the three dimensions that we're familiar with, we think of. For lots, I think that all changed at the fall. In Genesis 3, there's all kinds of changes that occurred. We live in ten dimensions now, but only four of them are directly discernible by you and I. Length, width, height, and time. The other six, according to scientists, are curled, less than ten to the minus 35 centimeters. And that's a whole other thing. But the point is... Ezekiel talks about Eden at before when before the time that Satan fell in Ezekiel 28. And he describes Eden in terms of these 12 precious stones, which may be simply an idiomatic way of talking about different colors of light. That's reasonable for lots of reasons. Or it may be something deeper. But then what makes it even more intriguing, when you get to Revelation 21... After the millennium, when we get to the eternal state and the new Jerusalem, its foundations are described in terms of 12 precious stones. Now you jump to the conclusion that the same 12 stones are in each place, except the problem is the vocabulary in that field of study isn't certain. I'd love to, yeah, I'm convinced just instinctively that all three 12 stones are somehow correlative. But you can't prove it because the names of stones are not aren't, aren't precise. You and I can think of diamonds because it has some absolute attributes. But some of these other stones go by different names in different cultures over the years, so you can't really match them. You follow me? So it's just I, I, I've chased this because I've been very interested in it, but I haven't so far, at least, I've been successful at satisfying a linkage. A lot of conjectures, and a lot of people have good opinions, and that's fine. But uh, it's a difficult area to research. But it's interesting that the twelve stones of the high priest. Uh, certainly echo in some sense the 12 stones that are mentioned in Ezekiel 28 of the early Eden, before it was a garden, before it fell, all that may have been a time before Adam, who knows. And then uh, also the New Jerusalem seems to echo those things again. So I think that's interesting. But this also leads to another area of conjecture. And that is, oh, I might mention the high priest not only had the 12 tribes engraved on the 12 stones of the breastplate, he also had two shoulder bars out of onyx, and on those shoulder bars he had six tribes on each one. So he had the twelve tribes on his shoulders and on his heart. You see, strength and love is sort of the idea and uh, that the high priest is bearing, if you will. And uh, so he had the nation Israel uh, on his shoulders and in his heart. The fact that that's onyx, that it's engraved, is kind of interesting. It's the first stone mentioned in Genesis, in chapter 2 even, that early. But this leads to another subject that I wish I had more insight for you. You keep reading, when in the scripture you'll read uh, at least four times, maybe several other times, of the Urim and the Thummim. What on earth is the Urim and the Thummim? The answer is, to give you the cl closing line first, is nobody knows. <laughs> now there's lots of conjectures, um, because they were placed either in, on, or behind the, the, the breastplate. There are Hebrew experts that say it was placed on the breastplate. I'll come back to that. It's most commonly viewed in most commentaries that the 
Urim and the Thummim were put behind. That the, the breastplate was made, it was designed sort of to be a pouch. And these two things, whatever they are, were tucked in there in this pouch. The word Urim means lights, and the uh, Thummim means perfections. So in the Hebrew, they seem to suggest lights and perfections. They're mentioned in Exodus 28 30, Leviticus 8 8, where we are, Deuteronomy 33 8, Ezra 2 63, and uh, Nehemiah 7 65. Now, from a number of passages, in fact, four other passages, we do understand them to be some way that the high priest determined the will of God. When the king or someone was faced with a decision, he wanted to seek out the will of God, the high priest somehow used the Urim and the Thummim to determine God's will. So some scholars speculate that they may have been two stones, the same feel and size of different colors, and, and the one that was, it's sort of like a, you know, a, a black ball or white ball kind of thing. They'd reach in and that would determine a yes or no to a question. They'd bring a question before the Lord and then the one that was drawn or one that spilled out of the pouch or whatever was the way of, it was like casting a lot, if you will. Um, now, in 1 Samuel 28, 6, uh, it indicates that sometimes a definite answer was not obtainable. That caused, that's caused a lot of scholastic puzzlement because it was a black or white ball. The one that came out would be clearly black or white, you follow me? Except the context of 1 Samuel 28 is Saul. It may be that he asked several questions and ended up getting contradictory answers because that did happen to David in 1 Samuel 23. He asked a bunch of questions and the answers would seem to be contradictory. And so that raises some questions. So there are lots of conjectures about these things as to what they really were. Uh, but the truth of the matter is a lot of scholastic effort uh, has really concluded that no one's quite sure. It is interesting that Moses needed no description of them. Almost everything else we're dealing with has descriptions of it in great detail somewhere, in Exodus, Numbers, someplace. And here this does not. So Moses must have just understood what he was supposed to do with these things. Now, there is a subtlety but some scholars uh, that in Exodus 28:30 that the that the urim and the thummim were not put in but on the breastplate, and that leads to a number of people that infer that what was going on here, the breastplate was all these multicolored stones, and also on each of the stones there were some letters engraved, and they speculate maybe there's some way while in the tabernacle with the seven branched candlestick, or I shouldn't say candlestick, that's a bad, uh, lampstand. It was oil driven, it wasn't candlestick, that's a bad King James, that's one of the bad King James translations. Uh, in this lampstand, that the reflections were somehow, would spell out words from the letters engraved on it. And uh, there, are, there are hints that that might be uh, part of the picture. Um, that they're somehow a result of the refractions of these uh, 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 stones. And uh, that's a conjecture. People have seen a relationship between the Urim and the Thummim to the law from Psalm 19. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, perfections, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The next, that's verse 7. Verse 8 says, the statute of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening. Again, the lights, the Urim, of the eyes. The whole idea that, uh, that uh, uh, God's Law was engraved in the tablets. The numbers, uh, in the Talmud and in uh, some of the rabbinical literature, even Josephus, 
there are all kinds of speculations, but again, none of them uh, really uh, 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 will withstand any real scrutiny. They did not exist after the Babylonian exile. And it almost seems to be a rabbinical relief that they don't because there's, there's so much confusion from the first Samuel episodes. But the Urim and the Thummim, you'll hear all kinds of people with all kinds of theories. The truth of the matter is nobody really knows. And that brings us down to verse 9. He put on the mitre upon his head, also upon the mitre, even upon his forefront. Did he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses? If you go to the Temple Institute in Israel, they will show you the crown that they will have on the high priest. It says, holiness unto the Lord in Hebrew on this gold plate that's part of his headdress. So it, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to actually go to the Temple Institute and actually see these things. These are not instructional pieces. These are d intended to actually be used when the temple is rebuilt. And we know it will be rebuilt because Jesus, Paul, and all John make reference to it. Well, now we get in a section called the, concentra uh, uh, the uh, consecration of the high priest. Verse 10, Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was therein and sanctified them. See, first they had been sprinkled with blood, as Hebrews 9.21 emphasizes. Now they're sprinkled with oil, which represents the Holy Spirit. Oil speaks of sanctification. Verse 11, and he sprinkled thereof upon the altar seven times, anointed the altar and all his vessels, both the laver and his foot, to sanctify them. And he poured the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify him. And by the way, Aaron was not sprinkled, he was anointed. And you say, what's that mean, Chuck? Well, in Psalm 133, verse 2, it says, speaking, it says, It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and that went down to the skirts of his garments. Incidental to the psalm, they happen to make that, but it is graphic in terms of visualizing what's going on here. And, uh, and the analogy here is, of course, Christ at his baptism where he received the Holy Spirit without measure, John tells us in chapter 3, verse 34. Holy Spirit was on Jesus Christ without limitation. And that's the analysis, or analogy. And by the way, oil was poured upon Aaron's uh, head and so forth before the priests had the blood applied to them, just as our high priest needed no offering for sin. We do, he did not. Anyway, now the clothing of the priests, Moses brought down Aaron's sons and put coats upon them and girded them with girdles and put bonnets upon them as the Lord had commanded Moses. There's the word commanded again. All commanded by the Lord, all in great detail. And now we get to the cleansing of both the priests and Aaron. He brought the bullock for the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the bullock for the sin offering. And there are four sons involved, so you have four sons involved here. Two are going to get in trouble here in a little bit, but 15, verse 15, and he slew it. Moses took the blood, put it upon the horns of the altar round about with his finger, purified the altar, poured the blood at the bottom of the altar, sanctified it to make reconciliation upon it. Here, in this case, there, it's not, the, the, the altar itself is being sanctified for its purpose forthcoming. Follow me? It's sort of a precedent shedding of blood on behalf, so to speak, of the altar itself. Verse 16, he took all the fat that was upon the innards and the call above the liver and the two kidneys and their fat and Moses burned it upon the altar. And the bullock and his hide, his flesh and his dung, he burnt with fire without the camp as the Lord had commanded Moses. Ritual, of course, is meaningless until we really understand the spiritual lesson. They follow the ritual of the sin offering with the exception that the blood is put on the horns of the altar rather than uh, on the golden altar or some other place. The, the, even the altar, which is used for bloody sacrifices, must be dedicated is the point. 
And the analogy here, maybe you put it this way, there is no merit in the cross, the wood of the cross. The merit is in the person that hung on the cross. Let's not confuse that. A lot of people make a thing of that. No, there is no, there is no merit in the wood of the cross. That's incidental. It's the one who died on the cross that uh, died for us there. It's the critical part. Verse 18. And he brought the ram for the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their heads upon the head of the ram. Now we're going to the burnt offering after the sin offering. He killed it, and Moses sprinkled the blood upon the altar round about, and he cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burnt the head and the pieces of the fat, and he washed the innards and the legs and the water. Moses burnt the whole ram upon the altar. It was a burnt sacrifice for a sweet savor and an offering made by fire unto the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. So now we're going through the ritual of the burnt offering following the sin offering. You have to deal with the sin question first. The sin offering represents what Christ um, did for us on the cross. The burnt offering represents who he is and is totally uh, consumed and is totally consecrated. You can't really come to know him until you first deal with the sin question. So you accept Jesus Christ as your substitute for your sin, and that opens the door for you to discover who Christ really is. It sounds backwards, but that's the way it really is. Um, you can't really know him until after you have applied his blood to your, 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 your his blood is applied to your sin by receiving him. It's then that you start to grow and understand who he really is, and what this is really all about. Verse 22, and he brought the other ram, the ram of consecration, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the ram, and he slew it. Moses took, the, took of the blood uh, of it and put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear and upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his uh, right foot. Then he brought Aaron's sons, and Moses put the blood on the tip of the right ear, upon the thumbs of the right hands, and upon the great toes of their right feet. And Moses sprinkled the blood upon the altar round about. Now this ram of consecration is really technically a trespass offering. There are no peace offerings made because they're already in the sanctuary, the place of fellowship and communion, and so forth. But the blood-tipped ear symbolizes the ear that's going to hear the word of God. And, of course, the hand is the one that's going to, the thumb represents the service, the hand that's going to serve God, and the foot, the one that's going to walk for God. And so each must be sanctified by service, and each must be totally presented to God. Verse 25, they took the fat, the rump, and all the rump, uh, the fat that was upon the innards, and the call above the liver, and the two kidneys, and their fat in the right shoulder, and out of the basket of the unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened cake, a cake of oil bread, and one wafer, and put them on the fat upon the right shoulder. And put all upon Aaron's hands and upon his son's hands and waved them for a wave offering before the Lord. And Moses took them from off their hands and burnt them upon the altar upon the burnt offering. And they were consecrations for a sweet savor. It is an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. For of the ram of consecration it was Moses' part as Lord commanded Moses. So they took parts of all these offerings, put them together in the hands of the priests. Total commitment is really the, the, the thrust of all this. Most, I'm going over this because most of this are echoes, if you will, of what we went through in the first seven chapters. Verse 30, And Moses took of the anointing oil and of the blood which is upon the altar and sprinkled it upon Aaron upon his garments, upon his sons and upon sons' garments with him and sanctified Aaron in his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. See, blood is for the forgiveness of sins, the work of Christ, the oil for the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the instructions for this were given in Exodus, back in Exodus 29, verse 21. But we're going to keep moving here right now. Verse 31, And Moses said unto Aaron and unto his sons, 
Boil the flesh at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and there eat it with the bread that is in the basket of the consecrations, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his son shall eat it. And that which remaineth of the flesh and of the bread shall ye burn with fire, and ye shall not go out of the door of the tabernacle of the congregation in seven days, until the days of your consecration be at an end. For seven days shall he consecrate you. And as he hath done this day, so the Lord hath commanded you to, to make an atonement uh, for you. Therefore shall ye abide at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation day and night, seven days, and keep the charge of the Lord, that ye die not. Ooh, for so I am commanded. So Aaron and his sons did all the things which the Lord commanded by the hand of, the, of Moses. So this verse 36 is the clincher for the chapter. Now, the details obviously must seem very bizarre unless you see the symbolism. You know, if you see, if you go through this without the benefit of the New Testament, it's weird. It's sort of bloody, it's sort of empty of meaning. It's when you begin to tie this together to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, who he is and what he did and the conditions, it all starts to come together. And of course, obviously, uh, we're just hitting some of the highlights. But now we get to Leviticus chapter 9. This is where Aaron, now Now that all the consecration is taking place, now Aaron actually, Moses has gone through all of that, now Aaron is, is consecrated for service. He begins actual services. And he does a sin offering, a burnt offering, meal and peace offerings. And then something very interesting happens. The glory of God appears. All this ritual, all these uh, ecclesiastical uh, uh, rituals, and then finally... Something really wild happens. Let's move on. The Hebrew word, by the way, for consecration, I thought was interesting. It means to fill the hand. The idea is when you come to be consecrated, you come with empty hands. You don't come with your agenda. God will give you his agenda and he'll provide what you need. See, we need to come with empty hands. He will determine what we need and how to do it. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 1, And it came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. Eighth day, in other words, the first day of the week, interestingly enough, that was the day of the Lord's resurrection. How interesting. And we have four sons as witnesses, all this. And the four sons, some people say, gee, I wonder if that has anything to do with the four Gospels. I don't think so, because of what happens to two of these sons shortly, but for what it's worth, I pass it. Verse 2, And he said to Aaron, Take thee a young calf for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And unto the children of Israel thou shalt speak, saying, Take ye a kid of the goats for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both of the first year, without blemish, for a burnt offering. Also a bullock and a ram for peace offerings, and a sacrifice before the Lord, and a meat offering mingled with oil. For today the Lord will appear unto you. Really? Yep. Verse 5, and they, they that brought that which Moses commanded before the tabernacle congregation, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye shall do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. Verse 7, And Moses said unto Aaron, Go unto the altar and offer thy sin offering and thy burnt offering, and make an atonement for thyself and for the people, and offer the offering uh, for the people, and atonement for them as the Lord commanded. And Aaron therefore went unto the altar and slew the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron brought the blood unto him. He dipped his finger in the blood, put it on the horns of the altar, and poured out the blood at the bottom of the altar, and the fat and the kidneys and the call above the liver of the sin offering he burned upon his altar as the Lord commanded Moses. And the flesh and the hide he burnt with fire without the camp. In other words, outside the camp. The sin offering again, see, was done first. The sin, the sin question has to be settled first. Ephesians 1, 7 also deals with that, by the way. So then now Aaron offers the burnt offering. He slew the burnt offering, 
Aaron's sons presented him the blood which he sprinkled around about the altar, and they presented him the burnt offering unto him, and the pieces thereof, and the head he burnt uh, them upon the altar. And he did wash his, uh, the innards and the legs and burnt them upon the burnt offering on the altar. And he brought the people's offering, took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people, slew it, offered it for sin as the uh, first, and he brought the burnt offering and offered it according to the manner uh, or ordinance or however you want to put it. Now we get to the, now all that's done, the sin and the burnt offering. Now we get to the peace offerings, the meal and the peace offerings. Same pattern as before. You know, he brought the meat offering and took the hand, uh, handful thereof and burned it upon the altar beside the burnt sacrifice of the, of the morning. And uh, he slew also the bullock and the, uh, and the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings, which was for the people. And Aaron's sons presented unto him the blood, and he sprinkled it upon the altar round about, and the fat of the bullock and the ram and the rump, which covereth the innards, the, the kidneys, and the call above the liver. They put, up, and they put the fat upon the breasts, and he burnt the fat upon the altar, and the breasts and the right shoulder. Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. And then we come to the big promised climax, verse 22. And Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering, the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. That must have been impressive. See, all is complete now. They've done the whole thing. And the Shekinah, the, the, the glory of God, appears to all the people, praise His name. The analogy, of course, is Christ has entered the holy place after His crucifixion in heaven itself to appear there for you on your behalf and mine. And He is going to be coming out. <clears throat> there came a fire, verse 24, He came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. Boy, I can imagine. Can you imagine? This is apparently exactly what happened in the offering in the days of Adam. See, I, I believe that uh, in those days, when they offered to the Lord, you could tell the Lord took it because he reached down and got it. The fire came down and consumed it. And that's how Cain and Abel could determine that God had respect for their offerings. because they have, That's mentioned not only in Genesis 4, verses 4 and 5, but it's also alluded to in Hebrews 11, verse 4. In fact, the very, as I think I pointed out before, but I think it's interesting, the very term in Hebrew meaning accept, like an offering, really means turn to ashes. The same, it's again, what you could consider sort of a pun, if you will. Okay, we're going to make it. Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu. We're going to have a change of pace here. The book of Leviticus is primarily these ordinances of all kinds. But here's a change of pace because we're now going to plunge into a little bit of a narrative here. Two of the sons of Aaron were named Nadab and Abihu. And uh, each of them, they took their censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. So these two guys are going to, they're going to go through the motions. They've got fire, but it isn't the fire God had prescribed. We can only speculate what was wrong with it. I'll give you a few suggestions in a little bit. But they did what would seem consistent with everything that's going on. They took a censer, put some coals in them, offered incense before the Lord. They offered this before the Lord. But it wasn't according to specification. It was probably the wrong time, wrong place, 
and wrong manner. We'll see in a minute. But this, their presumption is a bit frightening when you reflect back on Exodus 19. That's when the law was given at Sinai. In verse 22 of Exodus 19, it says that, Let the priests also which come near the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. Ooh, what does that mean? It means the Lord doesn't mess around. The Lord also, to give you another example, the Lord was also very specific about the formula for the incense to be used. When, when you get to uh, Exodus 30, you'll, uh, you'll find the formula for the incense. And I'll read it to you just quickly. The Lord said unto Moses, Take unto thee sweet spices, stacti, uh, anicha, and uh, galbanum, whatever these are, and these sweet price, uh, spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be a like weight, in other words, equal parts. Thou shalt make it a perfume, a confection after the art of the apothecary, tempered together, pure and holy. And thou shalt beat some of it very small and put some of it before the testimony of the tabernacle of the congregation where I will meet with thee, and it shall be unto you most holy. And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, ye shall not make it to yourselves according to the composition thereof. It shall be unto thee holy for the Lord. Whosoever shall make like unto that, to smell thereto, shall even be cut off from his people. I mean, the, the, the recipe is precise. And God means what he says and says what he means. He's holy. And now we have Nadab and Abihu come along. And the analogy is Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. There's a warning, by the way, in Hebrews 12, verse 25. In the book, book of Hebrews, says, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Again, one of these injunctions to take God seriously. Well, what happens to Nadab and Abihu occurs in verse 2. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Wow. Hebrews 12 does say our God is a consuming fire. Well, what have they specifically done? What's wrong with this? Well, they probably, first of all, didn't, they were guessing, they probably didn't light the censer of incense from the coals from the offer. The altar had been lit by the Lord and was supposed to be kept continually, and that was specifically the fire that was supposed to use before the Lord. They apparently didn't do that. That was specific, that'll be specified in Leviticus 16 when we get there. And they may have been out of step with God's timing. The ritual for the day had been completed. we have just gone through all that. It, all, it was done. And they, in any case, should have consulted with Aaron on the matter before charging off doing what they thought was a good idea. And they also may have, there's some hint in Leviticus 16, they may have intruded beyond the veil. So it's very possible that they uh, were wrong in the manner and the time and the place. And God is very specific. By the way, you say, gee, what's that got to do with us? We're not fishing. Well, we're priests, aren't we? Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And verse, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. It's speaking of the Lord's table. Right? Verse 11, from verse 17 on, it's about disorders and things at the Lord's table. When you get to verse 30, it, uh, it says, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. In other words, passed away. What for? For being disorderly during the administration of what we call communion. 
Commun you know, some, some denominations, you know, some denominations are very casual about communion. Everybody take a piece of bread and wine and we toast the Lord, and that's great. I mean, it's, it's fine, okay. Other, the more traditional denominations treat communion with great gravity. They often don't let children participate until they've gone through some training and passed certain tests that they know what they're doing, dealing with. And, you, and some of that we say, gee, that's sort of denominational. Well, there's a basis for it in 1 Corinthians 11. Some of these things that we do, there's only, you know, there's very few sacraments. Baptism and, and communion are basically it for the Christian. But we need to take them seriously. As we get through the book of Leviticus, you do get the impression that God means what he says and says what he means. And we have these hints by Paul that we should be taking the communion seriously too. Now, by the way, Ananias and Sapphira in, in the uh, Acts 5 is another example where they were hypocritical and they pretended to do something they didn't really do. And God took them out of the ballgame just as they took Nadab and Abihu out of the ballgame. Does that mean they lost their salvation? I don't think so. doesn't mean they lost their salvation, but they certainly took them out of the ballgame. Anyway, let's move on to chapter 10, verse 3. And Moses said to Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Boy, I imagine so. I imagine Aaron be shook. His two sons just consumed by God in front of his eyes. In front of all the congregation. I mean, think of, I imagine the other two brothers are going to be on their toes. But can you imagine the father, how he felt? He tried to hold his peace. Moses called Mishael and Elzaphon, the sons of Uzziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said unto them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So you see, uh, Moses calls a couple of his cousins, a couple of the cousins to take the bodies away. Verse 5, So they went near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. Boy, you can imagine they got everybody's attention here, right? Verse 6, And Moses said unto Aaron and unto Eliezer the, and unto Ethamar his sons, Uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes. So that's what you normally did to mourn. Here they just lost their brothers, but he says, Don't do that. Don't uncover, uncover not your heads. Neither rend your clothes, lest ye die, and lest wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. And ye shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle congregation, lest ye die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of the Lord. I imagine they did. See, a restriction is put on Aaron and his sons. They were, they were to represent the people and not mourn these people that God had judged at least not outwardly. Obviously, they were upset inside, and that's fine. See, they were not to contradict the action of God in judging their loved ones. Boy, that's a heavy principle being announced here. That's a heavy principle. Here's the easy part. It's clear that God was judging them. Often things we may think of God's judgment may not be, so it's not quite as crisp, perhaps. But this is very clear. God was judging them, and to be upset for them is to contradict God's judgment. Do you get the thought that's there? Strange stuff. Verse 8, The Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, thou or thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. There's just a hint here, some scholars suspect because this injunction is here, it may be that Nadab and Abihu also had a little too much to drink. 
that may have been a contributing factor to this casualness that, that caused them to get taken out of the picture. That's a speculation, obviously. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 10, That ye may put a difference between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean, that ye may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord hath spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. Now, by the way, this whole idea of a difference between holy and unholy and clean and unclean is very interesting to me because way back there in Genesis chapter 6, when God calls Noah to build his ark and all of that, he says, I want you to take two of each of the unclean and seven of the clean. In the ark. I often ask a group of people, how many did each animal know it take in the ark? And we says two from all the folklore. No, if you read your scripture, two of the un, two of the unclean and seven of the clean. Now the great question that no one catches is how did Noah know the difference? There's nothing intrinsically unclean about an animal that's been designated as ritually unclean. Those are Levitical definitions. Those are those are ritualistic definitions. Pigs aren't clean, but they're very clean, you know, in a sense. Well, that's a bad example. Um, the point is, the clean and unclean doesn't deal with their hygienic habits. It has to do with their ceremonial, their, their ceremonial categories. But the, but the hint of that is, is that these ideas are codified under the rule of uh, leadership of Moses, but they're not new ideas. I believe these ideas were installed in Eden. They go way, way back. Israel is called to follow them in great detail, but they're not invented here. The Sabbath day was not invented here. It was ordained in Genesis. Israel is observing the Sabbath day, among other times, in Exodus 16, when the manna came. The law wasn't given until Exodus 19, or actually, excuse me, Exodus 20, four chapters later. Okay, let's move on. We're now in verse 12. Moses spake unto Aaron, unto Eleazar, and to Ithamar, the sons that were left. <laughs> wow. Take the meat offering that remaineth of the offerings of the Lord made by fire, and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. And ye shall eat it in the holy place, because it is thy due, and thy sons due, of the sacrifice of the Lord made by fire, for so I have commanded. There's that word again. And the wave breast and uh, heave shoulder shall ye eat in a clean place, thou and thy sons and thy daughters with thee, for they that be thy due and thy sons due, which are given out of the sacrifice of the peace offerings of the children of Israel. And the heave shoulder and the wave breast shall they bring with the offerings made by fire of the fat, and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be thine, and thy sons with thee, by a statute forever, as the Lord hath commanded. There's that word again. And Moses diligently sought the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burnt. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, which were left alive. These are the two that are left alive, saying, Wherefore have ye not eaten the sin offering in the holy place, seeing it is most holy? And God hath given it to you to bear the iniquity of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, the blood of it was not brought in within the holy place. Ye should have indeed have eaten it in the holy place as I commanded. Now here's another tragic incident. You know, Aaron's got problems with his kids. <laughs> two of them were wiped out. Now these two guys have stumbled badly. Another tragic incident. Now in this case, it's an action contrary to the Word of God, but it's a sin of omission. It was not a deliberate and willful sin as, if, as was the two dead brothers. They screwed up, but it was inadvertent in effect. 
Verse 19, Aaron said to Moses, Behold, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, should it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? When Moses heard that, he was content. Imagine Aaron about this point is feeling like resigning. You know, I know there'll be many times in the next 40 years that Moses will very much feel like resigning, but we'll get on with that when we get there. You know, if God dealt with us the way he dealt with Nadab and Abihu and with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, this room would probably be empty. <laughs> now, admittedly, these early examples are to make an example, to teach us what, what's, he, what's God trying to teach us? To take him seriously. You don't have to wipe each one of us out for that. One should be enough to get this point across. We need to take God seriously. Now, we're not under the law. Praise God for that. We're not under the law. We don't have the requirements of these people that even Peter says, you know, we, a yoke that we couldn't bear as Jews. Why put that on the Gentiles? But still, the lesson is, is that we need to take God seriously. We live in an era that, of course, most people just ignore the Word of God. But even places where the Word of God is taught, there's a tendency to emphasize what some people call, unfortunately, it's a terrible term, they call it cheap grace. There's so much emphasis on the grace of God, and, and, and God's grace is amazing. It is amazing grace. But there's so much emphasis on that, we sometimes take Him pretty casually. God hates sin. He hates sin like we can't imagine. And that's what He's trying to communicate to us, is the hideousness of sin. And we sort of, it isn't until you really understand how God hates sin that we begin to appreciate the gift of a son to pay the price for all of that so that you and I are able to have righteous garments before the throne. Not our righteousness, his righteousness imputed to us. When we come to God, we have to come to God on his terms. He made the place. He writes the rules. We don't. Christ says that no man cometh to the Father but by Him. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Now the unbeliever looks at that and says, that's bigoted, that's narrow. Yes, it is. And Jesus said it was. He says, broad is the gate and wide is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way. And straight is the gate that leads to him. And uh, we just, we can't, can't dismiss that, can't, can't shine that on. That's, that's the reality of it. Well, um, we skimmed through three chapters. We went rather superficially, primarily because they, much of it was re uh, re repetitions or echoes, if you will, from the first seven uh, I think the, the, uh, there are, there's so much symbolism. Every detail of those offerings is relevant to some point God is making. And uh, we, can't, we certainly can't exhaust that uh, and, and get through this in a reasonable period of time. But hopefully we get enough of a perspective to be able to go on and build on what we have so far. God means what He says and says what He means. And He's given us commandments. If he hasn't, those commandments, we don't have offerings like that. Our offerings were all taken care of on a cross. But... I think it's incumbent upon us to understand as much as we can about what really happened on that cross, 
Why was he there? And the astonishing thing, if you go through and pull together all the specifications to qualify for these various issues, the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the rest of it, the astonishing thing is that Jesus Christ fulfilled every one of them. The specifications that were accomplished on that cross virtually 2,000 years ago are, uh, are, are every one of them were met by the one with whom we have to do. Let's, uh, let's uh, bow our hearts for a closing prayer. Well, Father, we just thank you. We thank you for that ultimate offering that you provided for us, Father. We thank you, Father, for our high priest who once and for all took care of all our needs. We thank you, Father, that we have, even right now, presence before you because our priest is there. And Father, we would ask that you would give us understanding that we might know your heart through all these things, that we might appropriate to, our, appropriate to ourselves what you've really done for us and what you would have of us in response. Help us, Father, to be more precise in our responses. Help us, Father, to be more responsive to your will in our lives. That in all these things we might be pleasing to thy sight, not by strength or power, but by your Spirit, Father. As we do, commit to you ourselves, without any reservation, coming to you in the name of our High Priest, Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.